As Paul said, my name's Kyle. Um, I'm one of the pastors here. If you don't know me, um, typically my wife and I are based on the evening meeting here, um, but my wife and my little boy are wandering around because she uh, is involved in the kids' ministry. I'm, I'm also having a meta moment. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Let the word of God resound and echo across the hills. I don't think that's an actual psalm, but I'm trying to work it in there. Um, yeah, it's great to be here. Uh, a little update from our side is um, little Harrison started crawling this week, which is awesome. Uh, I'm, I'm going to have a couple of stories here where you're going to be like, wow, what a great dad, great pastor, interesting dad, interesting pastor. Um, what got him crawling? Because I was trying all sorts of things for ages to like tempt him. Eventually, Tuesday, my father-in-law is there. We're watching the cricket like early evening and um, Castle Light beer can <laughs> on the ground. And Harrison is like, this is the greatest thing in the world. It's shiny, it's colorful, and that's what got him moving, chasing a little beer can. So I don't know what that says about me. I've now switched it out with a little Star Wars cup, um, which says more about me as well, but um, that's, that's helpful. Um, story from yesterday before I get going. Uh, this is one where you'll be like, oh, wow, what a great pastor. He loves the Word of God. Wow, really bad pastor. Um, so I got through 50 chapters, actually more at the end of the day, 50 chapters of the Bible yesterday. Listened to them on audio. Um, I started from the beginning of the Bible. So I did the whole of Genesis, and by the time I went to bed, I just crept into Exodus. Um, so that's amazing. Wow, loves, loves God's word. Amazing. Um, how did I have so much time, you might ask, to listen to? Genesis is, is three hours, 35 minutes. They said my playlist, three hours, 35 minutes. How did I get through that? Well, I was conducting a memorial yesterday, and... Um, I got in my car, I was driving to the memorial in Hermanus, and you go through uh, Somerset West, that whole area, Strand, going over uh, Solari's Pass, on my way to Hermanus, and that's where I decided, cool, let me get the maps back on so I can get the exact route now, I know where I'm going here, save data. So, like, nearing Hermanus, I put my maps on, uh, Bosman Family, Vineyards, click. I've been driving for an hour so far, it now says 1 hour 17 to my destination. I then realize... It says Wellington. I'm close to Hermanus. There's two places called Bosman Family Vineyards. My maps took me on the one, and then later on, Providence of God said, you're going the wrong way, buddy. You've you got an hour 17 to go. So the memorial was delayed by half an hour because the pastor was late. Um, but it gave me lots of time in God's word. Uh, and that's how I cracked the whole of Genesis on that trip. Um, so anyways, and everything went all fine in the end, and it was a, it was a wonderful day to honor um, this young lady, and it was so great for her family, but I properly stressed, and was, I mean, I was praying on the way there, like, God, move this truck, get this truck out of the way, like, nah, like, like God, help your name not to be um, dishonored by the pastor being late, and people think Christians, you know, just don't care about time, and like, oh, it was properly stressful, but anyways, it was good. So as Paul said, we're back in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we're almost uh, finishing the first half. That's what we've been trying to do this year. So in about four or five weeks, we'll arrive at the end of chapter 8, and we'll be finishing that up. And I want to throw out a question uh, to you all right now off the bat. And uh, the question's going to come up here. Is the world the way it should be? Is the world the way it should be? I think it's a question that often gets asked in our kind of circles, and uh, it comes up a lot. I mean, everything out there in the world is trying to solve the world's problems in, in some shape or form. Um, before you maybe answer the question, I do want you to just think of the good stuff. So before you just dive in, because I know that's where your mind is automatically going, um, 
Think of the good stuff. Friends, family, uh, Cape Town. Think of nature. You've got mountains. You've got the sea. You've got the promenade. On the promenade or nearby the promenade, you've got Dairy Den. For me, it's an amazing thing. I've, I've moved to, back to Weinberg to our flat there. So the other day, we came for a little Sabbath vibes, this side of the world, and Dairy Den was it. I mean, simple. Vanilla with Oreo topping, but it was delightful. Uh, so, you know, there's good stuff in the world, and this year we've got corona, so maybe straight away you'll be like, no, the world's not the way it should be. But I would say take the giant global pandemic off the table for a second, and still just think of the world. Is the world the way it should be? You've got greed, you've got exploitation, poverty, rape, murder, theft, racism, anxiety, death. You could add a whole bunch of things to this list. I think a lot of us in this room would probably say, no, in, in many ways, the world is certainly not the way it should be. So then that leads to a second question then, which is this. Well, what will and what won't solve the world's problems? If we all agree there's some major issues in our world, in our society, all across the globe, what can we do to solve the world's problems? And what is going to work, what's not going to work? And the, uh, our culture would in many ways, and all sorts of cultures around the world, would say, hey, there's definitely three things that are the main problems with the world. And if we can address these things, if we can fix these things, then everything's going to be hunky-dory, and the utopia that we all want to live in is going to come about. And they would say the problems are the products of these three things, environment, education, and example. So environment, that's the problem that, 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 that's wrecking this world. Not necessarily the environment, like environmental stuff, but the systems, the structures, the policies, uh, the governments, the culture, that's what's wrong. If we can just fix that, make it the way it should be, the way we want it to be, that's going to change our young minds and our people growing up, and that's going to change the world. We need to tear down systems, we need to reform things, we need to just make things the way they're meant to be. Number two, education. If we can just educate people, that's the problem with the world, lack of education. If we can just get the whole world better educated consistently, they'll know what's right and wrong. They'll know to not do that, do this, burn that thing, eat that thing, and the world will fix itself. We can just get education right. And lastly, example. Okay, if our young people, our children, if they could just have better role models, better examples in the home, at school, on the sports field, celebrities, whatever, if we can just find better examples, it's going to fix the world's problems. And maybe some people will say, well, they aren't all mutually exclusive. Maybe all three of them are the bedrock of the problem. We can just fix these three E's. We're going to bring about utopia. I think a lot of people put time and energy because they think that. And what I want to say is, I don't think any of those things, addressing any of those three things, are bad. I think a lot of things need to be reformed. I think education is wonderful, and we need education. You need education to be able to read God's Word. So I think education, for one, at least one reason, but many others, is amazing. And totally, young people need better examples in the world. So I'm not saying no to, to addressing those things. We as a church are involved in addressing those things in many ways. But man, is it politicians and, po like, and, and policies that are going to fix things? Is the big U.S. election going to solve the world's problems in two days' time? You know, is, is, is Biden coming in instead of Trump? Is that going to fix everything? Is Trump staying in going to fix everything? You can be the judge of that. Is it reason and rationality? Lots of things. But in today's passage in Mark, Jesus is going to answer this question, not by way of a direct response to the question, but by what he says to the religious leaders and what he says to his disciples. He makes very clear what he thinks is going to work and what's not going to work when it comes to solving the world's problems. 
And he's going to basically give us these, these two big take-homes. What, what, he, what he guarantees is going to fail, and what he guarantees is what we need to pursue. And so where are we at in the story of Jesus? Uh, some of you might be visiting, so you need to play a bit of catch-up here. And uh, basically, we haven't been in the Gospel of Mark for a couple of months, and the story as well has progressed for a couple of months. You might remember uh, last time Jesus is a traveling teacher. He is traveling around the region of Galilee, which is up north from uh, Jerusalem. And he's been teaching, he's been casting out demons, he's been doing miracles, and he's become very well-known in that region, and um, particularly he's become well-known amongst the religious leaders there, but also the religious leaders all the way down south in Jerusalem. And they've heard about him, and they actually really don't like him. He's rubbed up the religious leaders in multiple wrong ways uh, regarding uh, some of their Sabbath laws and their fasting laws, and basically... A couple of months ago, in the story and in our journey of it, um, the religious leaders gathered together and they said, cool, we need to take, make a plan to kill Jesus. We need to take him out. And so now what's happened in the story is a bunch of religious leaders from Jerusalem have been sent up north to come and start getting that plan underway. And they're trying to figure out ways to undermine him, catch him out, um, and, and, and figure out a way to plot to kill Jesus. And that's kind of where we're at in the story today. And we're going to uh, take the story, and we're going to tackle it. We're going to split it into two parts. It actually divides up quite well. And we'll read the first section, and we'll hear what Jesus says. It's definitely not going to work, so don't do this, people. And then we'll read the second portion where Jesus says, cool, I'm going to get to the heart of the problem here and tell you what we need to pursue. So you can read with me. It's going to be up on the screens. Mark chapter 7 is where we are, and we'll read from verse 1 to 13. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had also come from Jerusalem, They saw that some of his disciples, Jesus' disciples, ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Sounds like they're in a global pandemic. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it was written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. It's God's word for us. And here's the big idea that Jesus is trying to get across here in this. Beware of man-made religion. Beware of man-made religion is the point that Jesus is trying to say here. Now, you might all of a sudden read that sentence and you're like, what? Jesus? Jesus of all people? I thought this is what he was about. I thought he was about the rules and the regulations and just getting everything sorted in order to solve the world's problems. Isn't religion one of the ways that we're meant to be actually solving the world's problems if it's not uh, environment, example, and, 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 and uh, education? I thought religion would have been the thing that Jesus was going to go for. Surely that's, that's the one. 
Jesus just says, do this, do this, do this, don't do that, everything's going to be sorted. And in many ways, most of the world's religions do teach something like that. Here's all the ways that you're going to get right with God, and we're going to make utopia on earth, and if we just conform ourselves and, and follow that, it's all going to work out okay. And if we don't follow it, well, that's all just, then it's all going to go pair. And that's been the case for religions that have been around for thousands of years, also the case for religions that were created on the internet two or three weeks ago, that maybe some celebrities might follow, for example. But that's the general gist of most religions. But Jesus says, no, beware of man-made religions, whether they've been around for millennia or they just got created in the last century or the last week. And he gives us a bunch of reasons that we can pull out from this text. Um, There's four that I can see. There's probably more. But the first is this, that man-made religion adds to the Scriptures. Man-made religion adds to the Scriptures. You read in in verse 3 to 5, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots, copper vessels, and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not eat according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? What we're talking about here, this adding to the Scriptures, is legalism. It's one definition of legalism. And I want to say, legalism is not obedience. We can often throw that around. I don't want to be legalistic, so I'm not going to um, follow Jesus. No, 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 no. Please, let's not confuse those things today. One definition of legalism is adding and following and encouraging others to follow additional man-made rules, man-made regulations over and above what God has said in Scripture. And as I say, we desire to be obedient to God. We, we don't desire to be legalistic in the sense here where we want to add a whole bunch of extra things. And you've got to, you've got to put yourself in the mindset of these guys because we can easily judge them when Jesus starts saying, talking against them. But think of them. They've got this mindset that the law, the Old Testament of the commandments, is what's going to make them right before God. It's going to justify them and make them right in the sight of God. And so their thought is, well, I can earn God's favor by just nailing these rules. And so in their mind, they're like, well, if I just add 10% and I make this whole law 10% harder, at least I'm going to be safe. Okay, I've moved the boundaries a little further, so I might have some wiggle room, but I'm, I know that I'm going, to, I'm going to be safe because God's not going to be able to look down on me here. God's going to be proud. He's obviously going to accept them. That's their mindset. And so that's why they go big on things like washing hands. Like I said earlier, washing hands is not wrong. We made you wash your hands today when you came in here. So I'm not against washing hands. I'm not against washing hands, neither is God. But that's not going to give you one ounce of merit before God today. You can walk in and out that door 40 million times, sterilize it, soap or hand sanitizer. It's not going to get you one step closer to the heart of God. Telling other people to wash their hands or do a whole bunch of other things that God hasn't commanded is not going to get them one step closer to God. Because we can't find right standing before God in additional rules or even following the rules that God has set out for us in a way that we think we can self-justify ourselves and earn God's favor. That's not what they were there for. That's not what God has placed them in Scripture for. And so another definition of legalism could be following the rules for all the wrong reasons. Adding to the Scriptures or following the rules for all the wrong reasons. 
And I do want to say, you know, people will now take what I've said or take what Jesus said and say, cool, uh, are you saying, you know, obliterate rules, obliterate the commands? Didn't Jesus, wasn't he just all about love and not about rule keeping? Jesus wasn't this authoritative, authoritarian, absolutist guy. And that's wrong. Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it and he came to, to bring it to its conclusion. But Jesus himself obeyed it. Jesus got baptized when John was baptizing people, and he said, hey, this was the right thing for me to do. And he in turn insists that the rest of us love him and keep his commandments. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So we, I don't want anyone to try to wriggle out of the implications of God's will and his call for us. The, God's laws, God's, God's commandments, and love for him are, are not at war with each other, but there's a way that they beautifully are meant to fit together. And what Jesus is rejecting here are man's additions and man's, what's the word I'm looking for? Misrepresentations of his law. So that's the first thing. Second thing is this. Man-made religion focuses on the externals while God looks at the heart. It focuses on all the externals, but God's trying to look at the heart. Okay, verse 5. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? It's all about the hands of washing the copper pots sterilizing the couch, whatever it might be. And Jesus says a little later, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Their heart's from me. Environment, education, example, those things that I, that I brought up, all these external things that we can do, fix people's minds, fix people's circumstances. None of those things are evil, but friends, our, all our great work across the globe is consistently falling short of solving the world's problems. And it falls a million times short of earning favor with God. And we just have to recognize this. Okay, the external things are not what is most important to God. I want us to hear this. In fact, God says on multiple occasions in Scripture, He's, he's looking at the heart. Okay, David, he, in the Old Testament, he cared about David's heart. You read from the, from the New Testament, Paul in Romans 14 says, Whatever doesn't proceed from faith is sin. It's like, I don't care about what you're doing here. Is it done in faith? Is it done in faith towards me? In Hebrews, without faith, it's impossible to please God. You can do all this stuff, but if you don't have faith, I'm not pleased at all, God says. All your little trinkets, all your little washing hands, all your little other external religious things, I'm not impressed by them if the heart's in the wrong place. And if you've ever spent time trying to do this, and I think we can all fall into this trap a lot of the time, it can get really tiring because typically man-made religion often ends up also trying to please men because we're all looking at each other and saying, no, you need to do this. You should have done that. Why aren't you doing this on Facebook? Why aren't you at this rally? Why aren't you posting that photo? Why aren't you changing your profile pic? Whatever it might be, there's this external pressure to put on the externals. And it gets really tiring. Don't say this. Say this. Can't believe you said that on Facebook. Shame on you. So it really, really does focus on the externals, but God looks at the heart, misses the point. Third, man-made religion breeds hypocrisy. It breeds hypocrisy. It kind of flows off the back of that last one. Verse 6, Jesus says, and he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? Because it's written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from him. Jesus just blatantly calls them hypocrites. You are hypocrites, and this is going to lead you into more hypocrisy. And let's be honest, hypocrisy is actually one of those 
things that um, our culture agrees with Jesus on at this point in, in time, okay? Hypocrisy is pretty much still maligned in our culture. If people are saying one thing and doing another, our general culture across the globe right now doesn't like that. We dig authenticity, and so when people are hypocrites, we can smell it out, the world smells it out, and they say, no, I don't want to go near there. Particularly hypocrisy in the church. I think because the world knows that hypocrisy sucks, when they see hypocrisy in the church, it is an easy target for us to just get shot down. Jesus says, no, man, I don't want hypocrisy. I don't want hypocrisy anywhere, but I certainly don't want hypocrisy amongst my people. It looks terrible. It, makes my, it you know, profanes my name. And breeding a generation of hypocrites or a nation of hypocrites is just going to add to the world's problems. It's not going to solve them. And leads to the last thing here. When Jesus says, beware of man-made religion, it's because it rejects God's word in order to uphold tradition. So not only does it add to the scriptures or maybe minimize some things, but actually when they bring in their traditions, when they add to the scriptures, it actually takes God's word away. So verse 9, Jesus says to them again, you guys have a, he didn't say guys, but you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. You're actually going to, you're going to bring your tradition in here, and actually you're going to have to remove this whole section of the Word of God in order for your tradition to stand and for people to follow that out. And the example that Jesus gives here is this thing of Korban. Korban. And what is Korban? Well, essentially in the text it says um, uh, you can pronounce something Korban. You can pronounce a whole bunch of your goods or your property or whatever Korban, which means dedicated to God. And what's happening, I mean, there's two kind of interpretations. Both make the, make the same case, is... What you could do in that day was if you said, cool, this plant is now Corban, I've dedicated to God. If someone else says, hey, can I get that plant from you? I need that plant. I'm really desperate. Can I get that plant to decorate my house? It's a lame example, but whatever. Um, you could just say to them, no, sorry, this is Corban, I've dedicated to God. And you can do that over anything you want to keep and not have to give away. And you wouldn't have to give it away. So the one interpretation is their tradition was saying, no, 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 guys, if we just say Corban, we don't have to help our mother or father who's desperately in need of money and we need to sacrifice and give to them. No, we can just say, no, 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 Corban, sorry, guys, I've taken a vow, I've declared this as God's and, and, and you can't have it. The other interpretation of the verse, which is the same principle, is that maybe there was a poor guy who had taken a vow of Corban and said, you know what, I'm dedicating my whole, all my flocks, my whole property, I'm dedicating everything to God. It is Corban. And then he gets word that his folks aren't doing well and they need money from him. And the Pharisees say to him, no, 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 my friend, you've made a vow. You've said, this is Corban. You can't just not give this away. You've dedicated this to God to do what we said we're gonna do with it. You can't get out of this. Either way, they're taking their tradition and they're putting it there and it's minimizing the call of God for this person or people to actually love their mother and father or serve people in need. It's a very, very clever, tricky way for them to twist the scriptures, uphold their tradition, and absolutely minimize the heart of God and the point of God. And don't get me wrong, customs, preferences, traditions that aren't directly commanded in scripture, um, that don't directly conflict with scripture, are totally permissible. And we've, we do it here, other denominations do it. Um, it's totally acceptable if it actually serves the purpose of, of the stuff God's called us to. And we don't want to teach um, things that are obligatory in Scripture as, as just optional things. And we don't want to take the things that are optional in Scripture and say, okay, you must do them. So we want to figure out, both as leaders and as people in this church, what does the Scripture actually say, what's God called us to, and what is tradition that we can 
either use to serve us or discard. Because tradition isn't bad. I think it actually can get quite a bad rap in our culture. I, I hate tradition. And actually, a lot of tradition has served us over the years, family traditions, church traditions. But when they get in the way of what God said and they actually take away from God's word, we have to move away from them. Maybe one example of tradition that serves us in this church, um, and you might not even think of it as a tradition, but um, our small group structure, it's a, way that we, it's a way that we do church here. We say, hey, cool, we've got the whole church, and in order for us to live out the, the, all the one another's of Scripture, serve one another, teach, uh, teach one another, encourage one another, we think the best way to build community, especially in an ever-growing church, is to break it into smaller little groups. It's a tradition. I mean, you do kind of see it in the New Testament. They're made in homes, and they're made in the temple courts. But there's no command that says, thou shalt have small groups, thou shalt have life groups, thou shalt have home groups, whatever you want to call them. But it's a tradition that, 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 that we've set up which, which serves the purpose of what it's meant to. That's, I think that's an example of a tradition that, hey, we want to keep, and we want to say this serves the purpose. You can though, arrive at small group, and instead of um, being known, being served, being loved, and instead of knowing people, serving people, and loving people, it can just be a thing that you tick off, and then you'll be heading into the realm of fruitless tradition, lips here, heart here. And we want to be arriving in our life group because it's a tradition that serves God. We want to be arriving there with hearts that are ready to go, ready to serve, ready to love, ready to know people. Maybe an example as we wrap up this first section here. Well, how else could we be involving ourselves in man-made religion? Like, I'm not aware of it. I, like, I consider myself a Christ follower. Um, what, are the, what are the small little indications that actually maybe our hearts are drifting a little bit towards man-made religion? Well, here's a couple. Struggling to worship God. And what I mean by that is you come here on a Sunday, and in your heart and in your mind, all you can think of is this last week where you've fallen short. You've, you've, you've committed a whole bunch of sins, and you're, just, you're stuck in your sin, and you're trying to worship, but you're just like, I've, this sucks. I can't, I can't get close to God. I've, I, I've stuffed up. Two weeks later, you come back, and you've actually had a fantastic week with God. You've been in the Scriptures. You, you went through all 50 chapters of Genesis three and a half hours in one day, and you've just, you know, you're flying high, and you get to church, and you are able to just worship. I would say that you've actually fallen into a bit of man-made religion there, because you think that your own righteousness, your performance in that week is what gives you right standing before God. It is in many ways exactly what the Pharisees were doing, except instead of just washing your hands, you had done your good deeds for that week. Maybe you did it out of, out of genuine heart for God, but if when you've fallen short, you think it's because of your own works that put you right before God. You've missed the whole point. Now, we come to worship God on Sundays and every day of the week because of the blood of Christ, because He's forgiven us, because He's given us right standing before God. So that's just a subtle little, little one. Maybe you are struggling to forgive yourself. I know a lot of people would often say that, hey, I'm struggling to forgive myself. But what you've done there is you've then inserted your, your level of righteousness, your level of judgment over yourself above God's. Because if you're a Christ follower, Christ has forgiven you. Surely you need to forgive yourself. Otherwise, are you in judgment of God? Is what God has declared over you now no longer true because you've said it? Ah, you've made a small little man-made tradition in your, in your mind. Last one, maybe. I know some people would say, hey, I'm, 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 I'm not ready to get baptized yet. I've, I've trusted Christ. I've followed Christ. I'm not ready to get baptized yet. I just need to get my life in order. Well, I would say that misses the whole point of baptism, misses the whole point of being a Christ follower because Jesus said, I've died for you. And the whole point of baptism is to say, I've received that and I'm going to die and come back to life because that's what you've done in me. So you need to wait until you've got your life in order. The whole point of baptism is to express the fact that you don't have your life in order and you needed Christ to die and be raised on your behalf. 
small little things, but with all of this, our righteousness is the measure, and that's the heart of man-made religion, that Jesus says, beware of. Far from solving the world's problems, Jesus says, I think they're probably going to make the world worse in many ways. So, that's not going to work. Beware, Jesus says. So, where does he go next? Where does he go next? And you can read with me now from verse 14 to 24. And he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. So previously he said, hey, Moses and the law said something, but you guys, the Pharisees, you said something else. Now Jesus said, cool, everybody listen up, hear me, hear me and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples, which happens all the time, asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not the heart but his stomach and is expelled? It's a graphic piece of toilet example. That is exactly what it is. Thus he declared all foods clean, says Mark. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. And from there he arose, and he went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. So, what does Jesus say is the answer to the world's problems? Well, here it comes. Drum roll, please. Realize our hearts are the problem, and we need new ones. Realize, humanity, your hearts are the problem, and you need new hearts. It's not what goes in, but what goes out that defiles us. And again, it's not to say that we shouldn't take care of what comes into us on all sorts of levels, okay? Plenty of doctors in the house. Smoking will damage your lungs. Be careful what you take in, okay? You take in pornography. That's going to have an effect on you. It's going to rewire your brain. It's going it's to cause unhelpful desires. But that's not the source of your defilement. It's not the source of your defilement. Because as an individual, you can, you can starve yourself. You can beat yourself. You can routine yourself and do whatever you can think of in order to bring about you know, order and harmony and peace and shalom and goodness to your soul and your life, but it won't work. It doesn't go deep enough. That was Martin Luther's problem in the monasteries 500 years ago, the dawn of the Reformation. Luther would beat himself unconscious in his cell because of his sins. And yet it didn't help him. It didn't help him. As a planet, Jesus is saying, guys, all the money, all the education in the world is not going to solve your problems. The most educated nations and people in the world in the 20th century slaughtered millions. Holocausts, wars, abortions. Most educated people in the world. Genocides. And right now, the most prosperous nation in the world in many ways is, is literally burning. There's been fires in multiple cities across America for months. Education, prosperity, example, doesn't get deep enough. 
It's a great quote here from, now I mispronounced his name last time when I used this quote, and uh, Rod McAllister graciously came to me afterwards and said, hey Kyle, it's, it's pronounced this. Um, so I'm going to try to get it right here. It's coming up now. His name is, uh, oh, you can skip to the next slide. His name is Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Get that. Beautiful. Here we go. Yes, great, Kyle. Rod, over to you, Rod. Thanks. That one's for you, buddy. But um, he was in uh, the Soviet Union. He spent a lot of time in the forced labor camps um, in horrible conditions uh, during communist Russia. And um, this was his, one of his lines he wrote in his book. The line, oh, sorry, go back. The line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through the heart of every human being. It's not about which class you're from, what gender you're from, what color your skin is. If you've got money, you don't have money. Every human being has the same problem because evil cuts through the center of every one of our hearts. He nails exactly what the Bible is talking about. He nails exactly what Jesus is talking about. I've said it before. The times have changed, but the, the heart of mankind is not. Times have changed. Human heart has not changed in millennia. Before I pick up this point, I want to make one quick aside here and point out something in the text because uh, Mark writes in, that, in saying what Jesus said about it's what comes in that defiles you, he then says that Jesus saying this declared all foods clean. And he's saying that, um, hey, Moses said a whole bunch of stuff and he set up this law for the nation of Israel and now that I'm here, it's fulfilled, including the dietary laws. And he's saying, cool. It's played its part. I'm not abolishing it, but it's fulfilled. It's played its part in showing separation between the nations to um, show them that they were a separate nation from the rest of the world so people could see God. And Jesus said, cool, it's reached its intended purpose. I'm now here. I am the fulfillment of this age. And actually, it's a hint of Jesus saying, cool. And now that my work is not just among the people of Israel, it's now going to spill the banks and go out to the rest of the nations across the Gentile world, all the way across the globe. And that's why the story actually ends with saying, and then Jesus went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. So this Gentile, non-Jewish bunch of cities up north. And because of that little moment now, we're here enjoying the gospel and enjoying our bacon many years later. So back to the main idea. Jesus says, verse 21, 22. He just has that list. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. That's actually quite a long list, to be honest, in just one go. He says, these things have been crippling humanity for millennia. It's the same things from 2,000 years ago as now. Their sins, their external sins, and they manifest themselves in life. He says in verse 23, all these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. He says, external sins, they flow from internal sinful hearts. They don't start out there. They come from in here. Now, we need the right words, we need the right actions, we need the right policies in the world, we need, we need all that external stuff, because that's where life happens, but it's not going to work if we just go there and try to fix them there. And if you don't believe that, then you don't believe Jesus. If you don't believe that, you don't believe Jesus. And if you are someone here who has come today, and you say, actually, I've arrived here, not someone who believes Jesus and trusts Jesus, the invitation for you today is quite simple. Jesus just says, trust me. <laughs> Trust me, this is the issue. And he puts the invitation in your lap today to say, hey, trust me, follow me, follow me, come this way. 
And that's what the gospel is all about. That's what the central message of the Bible and our church, hopefully, is all about, that we need new hearts, okay? Jesus said to one of the religious leaders uh, way back in the story, Nicodemus, he said to him, here it comes, drum roll again, you must be born again. You need to become a whole new creation. The old you needs to die, the new you needs to come to life. You need to be born again. We need new hearts, You can't just assume that you can stand before a holy God based on your own works, your own merits. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We fall short daily. We fall short of our own standards and glory, let alone the glory of God. If you said even from today onwards, I'm going to achieve the glory of God, you would certainly fail. And you've already failed, so you're stuffed anyway. (laughs) You need a new heart. And that's what Jesus promises. That's what Christianity is all about getting new hearts. We don't have the right standing. We're condemned in our sinfulness, and that's exactly why Jesus came, to make a way. He didn't come primarily to say, do this, don't do this. He does say that stuff because he's wise, and he wants his kingdom to come and have utopia on earth. But he says, in order to get this, I'm going to die on the cross on your behalf. I'm going to take your sins upon me. They're going to be punished on me instead of punished on you. I'm going to defeat death. I'm going to come back from the grave to prove to everyone that I have defeated death. And now if you want a new heart and you want my record of righteousness and perfection before God, just trust me. Trust me. Follow me. Turn your whole life, your mind, your heart to me. Start a new life following me. And I'm going to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, give you a new heart. You'll be born again. And then we can start figuring this thing out about solving the world's problems. We can start moving. And my kingdom can start coming in and through you, my son, my daughter, and the whole family of God. But it's only through transformed hearts that we're going to be able to move forward with transformed lives. And that's what Jesus died to offer us. So how to respond? How to respond today to this? Well, Jesus said that he's making all things new. He said, I'm going to, I am solving the world's problems, Jesus said. My kingdom's coming. My rule and my reign is breaking in. I'm transforming the world. And he says, you can be a part of it. You can be a part of it. And he asks himself, well, how do, how, do, how do I enter the kingdom? That's what Nicodemus said. How do I enter the kingdom? Well, be born again. And how do you get a new heart? How are you born again? Repent and believe, like I said just now. Repent means to turn your mind, turn your heart, turn your life, face God, trust Jesus, and believe. And he'll give you a new heart. But then the follow-up question comes in, which is, well, how am I meant to live with my new heart? How do I live with my new heart? And I got these things here. Confess, repent, trust, obey. I could say them every single week when I get up here because they're they're not unique to this sermon, but here's the idea. Be a conduit for the Spirit of God and the kingdom of God into the world around us because that's going to solve our problems. That's going to serve the world, and that's going to make God look great. And how you do that is recognize that you still fall short. You've got a new heart, but you still stumble, and so confess that. Why? Because if you don't confess it, you're going to be a hypocrite, which is a problem, Jesus says. So come, confess. Let your actions, your words be a guide. Recognize your need for mercy and come back to God once again. This needs to be a a habit, almost a daily rhythm for each and every one of us. I I confess and I repent before God. And he, he just washes our experience of him clean. He gives us the boldness, gives us the confidence we need based on Christ, not on us. 
and then we can trust and obey. Man-made religion says, to earn God's favor, you need to do this. Well, no, we're going to do this because we trust God, and we love Him, and we know that He knows what's best for us, and I want to love Him and serve Him and worship Him and make Him look great, and I know that as I do that, it's going to be good for me. So trust and obey what God says. We're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. And the world needs good works right now. It needs good deeds. It needs integrity. It needs compassion. It needs wisdom. It needs justice. So let's get to know the Word of God ourselves. Know what He's called us to. Know what He's commanded us. And then ask Him to put our hearts into those things. And the world can change. The world can change. Why don't you stand with me? I'm going to close there. And I'd love to pray for us, uh, a bunch of prayers, actually. Um, I'm going to first pray for anyone who wants a new heart. You've recognized either I'd never considered the Christian faith at all, or I had completely misunderstood the Christian faith. Maybe you've been in a church for 40 years, and you realize, I've missed the whole point. I've been a Pharisee, and I need to be a new creation. And if that is you, you can just pray with me right now as a moment of confessing with your mouth what's happening in your heart right now as you turn to Christ. And so repeat after me. Father, I thank you for sending Jesus to die on my behalf. I recognize that he is you in the flesh, that he knows what's best. And right now I turn my whole life to face him and trust in him. I put my life in his hands. My mind, my thought life, my heart, my emotions, my body, it all goes into Jesus' hands right now. Make me a new creation. I want to be born again. I thank you for your love for me displayed on the cross. And I now consider myself a follower of Christ. Father, for all of us now who would believe to have transformed hearts, and maybe we've seen the evidence of that slowly in our lives over the years, over the weeks, Father, right now, help us to be people of daily activity with you, with hearts that are pointed to you and interact with you, God. Help us to be people of confession and repentance. We don't want to be hypocrites, God. We want to be people who live in relationship with you. And we know that we're not going to be sinless. If anyone says they're without sin, they're a liar, John said. But God, we know that when we do sin, we have an advocate with you, Christ Jesus, the righteous one. Remind us of that daily, God. Bring us back to you daily. And then, God, help us to trust and follow you, God. God, engage our hearts. Engage our hearts today. Engage our hearts this coming week, God. Help us to see you for who you truly are, your goodness, your grace, your power, your wisdom in how you want to see the world change, the power of your kingdom that's been coming for 2,000 years since the, the arrival of Christ. Help us to engage in that, God. Put our hearts in the right place. Make us passionate for you. Make us passionate for good works. Make us passionate for your glory and your renown among the nations and among our neighbors. And Father God, help us to obey you.
Even when it's hard, help us to follow you because that makes you look great and it is for our good. And I pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Carl. I'm glad you found our venue.